You know, I suppose in one sense I put this together as kind of a, oh, I don't know, a defense against spiritual or maybe intellectual complacency. We don't want to take our beliefs for granted, and we don't want to take our faith for granted, and we don't want to take our relationship with God for granted. We need to think about what we believe, about why we believe it. If not only for our own good, then I think of the verse in Scripture where Peter, where he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason that the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's what I want to do with this talk is, is, you know, simply help, you know, if indeed does, anyone who would like to give some answers to somebody that asks about what we believe and why we believe it. Now, notice the title is not, Why Do I Believe in Jesus? Or Why Do I Believe in the Second Coming? I'm getting much more basic than that, much more foundational than that. These are things that you really need faith for, and these are things that you need revelation for. And although I'm not denying that you need faith to believe in God, I would argue that there are very powerful rational and logical reasons to believe in God. And in fact, I would say the arguments in favor, the logical, rational arguments for God, the existence of God, I believe are much stronger than the arguments, the logic and reason that's used for atheism or for disbelief in God. I truly believe that the logic and reason is much more on our side than it is on the side of those who don't believe. And, you know, maybe this will help you see it when we're done. Anyway, I want to start out with a story told by C.S. Lewis. Now, I'm not really a big C.S. Lewis fan. When he's good, he's very good. When he's bad, I mean, he's dreadful. But, you know, Lewis does have some, has had some very good insights at times. When he was told a story, when he was an agnostic, about how, he, I think he was sitting in the teacher's lounge at Oxford or something, sitting around with some other professors and probably smoking and having their morning coffee in the, in the lounge. And he talked about somebody who we call the hard, quote, the most hard-boiled of all atheists I ever knew. And they were sitting there in the lounge just chatting, and then out of the blue, this hard-nosed atheist, as he said, the hard-boiledest of all atheists I never knew, sat there, and in the midst of the conversation, he said, well, you know, something to the effect of, well, you know, CS old chap, something like that, the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels is really surprisingly good. And then he just stopped the conversation. You know, it would have been like if somebody would have been sitting there saying to him, you know, C.S., I was sitting there and a flying saucer came down in my backyard and scooped up my dog and took him away. Oh, please pass the salt. <laughs> just drop the conversation like that. You know, and C.S. Lewis thought about that for a minute. And he thought about, well, the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels is good? Because, you know, the Gospels, in fact, the other day I was doing for my morning worship, I was reading through the book of Matthew, 
And Matthew just starts out, this is the generation and -and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. I mean, about as earthly and a human and natural thing as you could do, begatting other people, one after another. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, it just drops in the virgin birth. Okay, no attempt. I'm going to really try to strain credulity here. I'm really going to try to, you know, ask you to really reach out in faith. Just kaboom, drops in something incredibly miraculous. And the point is, the the Gospels are filled with miracles. From beginning to end, they they just assume a supernaturalist view of existence. And, you know, including especially the, re- the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot of power. I have a whole sermon I give on evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And when you really get into it, it's amazing. It's amazing how powerful that is. But anyway, Lewis was floored. Lewis was floored because if the Gospels were historically accurate, then, then, then miracles really happened. And if miracles really happened, then his atheistic, materialistic view of the world, which said miracles don't happen, would have to be wrong. I mean, if you have a worldview which says that divine miracles cannot occur, but then you're given some strong evidence that divine miracles or miracles have occurred, then what happens to your worldview? Your worldview, and we're talking about a fundamental worldview here, We're not talking like changing political parties or something. We're talking about something fundamental. Changes. And uh, and that really started to get C.S. Lewis on a quest that wound up becoming a believer. Now, I use this account not so much as an introduction into some kind of gospel apologetic, but as an introduction to what has represented from antiquity the two overarching views of the world. There's two basic views that you go back, back into antiquity. First, there's the atheistic, materialistic view held by many in ancient Greece right up through to today, you know, which, which, which is a view that's rallied, it's proclaimed a lot by They call themselves the New Atheists. Maybe you've read, you know, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. I've read them all. You know, I've read all their books. I haven't read all their books, but I've read most of them. And uh, they're basically just promoting this same old um, view. No God, no creator. We're purely transcreations of what one ancient Greek, centuries before Christ, once called Adams and the Void. So all that exists, atoms in the void, which is pretty amazing. Think about it, about 2,300, 2,400 years, no, about 2,500 years before Christ, they basically gave somewhat of the atomic theory, you know, atoms in the void, okay? Now, in contrast to that view, there is the belief in some kind of supernatural being or beings from Zoroaster's Ahura Mazda to Voltaire's deism, because Voltaire was not an atheist. Voltaire once said, every watch needs a watchmaker. You've got that to Calvinist predestination and on and on and on and everything else as well. Now, either worldview or any version of them, Lewis knew negated the other. Okay, it's an either-or situation. Either there is a God or gods, or there isn't a God or gods. Okay, period. I mean, there's no middle ground there. Either knew he knew 
He knew that either view negated the other. You know, if only one is true, the other is false. Either God, God or God's exist or they don't. And as my talk unsubtly suggests, I believe that God exists. So I guess the question is, why do I believe in God? What would be the, some of the reasons that I would believe? I want to start out with a, a philosopher asked a question, and in many ways, it's about the most basic question I think anybody could ask. I say, why do I believe in God? Well, why do I believe in anything? Why is there anything at all to believe in? Or is there even a subjective consciousness, such as myself, that could believe it? Or to get as basic, philosopher asked one of the most basic questions that I think you could ask. Why is there something instead of nothing? Okay, think about that. I mean, that's pretty much... You know, how much further can you get? Why is there something instead of nothing? Now, I thought about this, and I tried to argue. I wonder if you could ask the question, why is there nothing instead of something? But I guess the, that's self-refuting, because you can't even ask the question. There has to be something there to ask the question. So that doesn't really make any sense. So why is there something instead of nothing, if you're going to get right down to the basics? Well, I think the answer must be found in some version of one of those two worldviews that we just talked about. Okay, why is there something instead of nothing? It's either in the universe, either originated through natural or through supernatural origins. If the latter if it came through supernatural origins, then the universe was made by being or beings greater than or prior to it. Otherwise, creation had to have occurred naturally, out of itself, which leads to the question, how did it first get there in order to arise out of itself? How could it have created itself? That's kind of absurd if you think about it. How does anything create itself? Okay, how could something create itself? You, something can't create itself, because in order to create itself, it had to be there. But if it's already there, then it didn't create itself. See, it's, it's, it's not a logic, it doesn't make sense. So with the universe, how did the universe, if it wasn't always there, how did it get there? It couldn't have created itself. Now, there's, there's one out from this. It's a belief that existed for a long, long time. And that is that the universe is eternal. That the universe always existed. Aristotle taught that. And it was pretty much believed up until the 20th century with the Big Bang, and we'll come to that in a little while. But if the universe always existed, always was there from eternity, then even the question, how did it arise, is what? It's illogical. It's, it's illogical, because if it always existed, then you don't have to ask the question where it came from. Now, there is um, some problems with the whole idea of an eternal existing universe. And I'm going to touch on one. And I, don't, I would Google it if I were you, because it's, 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 
It's not simple, and I'm not utterly convinced. I think there's something to it. There's something to it, but it's an old medieval Muslim argument called the Kalam, K-A-L-A-M, Kalam cosmological argument. And there's a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig, who is just brilliant, brilliant. He's a genius. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of this guy. And William Lane Craig has kind of revitalized in the 20th and the 21st century this old medieval argument, this Kalam cosmological argument. And it's a bit tricky, and I don't want to belabor it, but think about it for a minute. The argument states that an infinitely old universe is impossible. It's impossible because it would imply that an infinite amount of time must have been passed, we must have been crossed over, you know, in, in order to have reached the moment that we're in now, or any moment that we're in now. If it existed eternally, you would have had to have almost like counted from infinity to wherever you are at this, this moment right now. But how can, you know, an infinite amount of time, how do you count from, an, you know, infinity up to the present moment, okay? So in other words, if the universe existed infinitely in the past, then an infinite number of moments must have been traversed in order to get to where we are now. But if we can't count in our heads to infinity, how can in reality an infinite number of moments ever been passed by? Okay, as I said, think about it. Think about it. It's not, there's, there's something to it. There's something to it. It's, it's subtle, and, and, and William Lane Craig really, if you, if you remember that name, does a very good job in trying to resurrect this argument. But anyway, whatever the validity or weakness of the Kalem cosmological argument, the Big Bang Theory has all but mooted it anyway. Okay, now people come up to me, you believe in the Big Bang? I said, yeah, I believe in the Big Bang. It's probably wrong, okay? Uh, but, but for now, I don't have a problem with the Big Bang. You know, your Big Bang, is, you need a big, you know what, in order for the Big Bang. It doesn't, you know, doesn't get rid of the need for God. So I have no problem. In fact, the Big Bang does solve this question of the Kalem cosmological argument, okay? According to this theory, the universe once not existing came into existence, okay? And it's very interesting. I can remember, oh, about 20 years ago, I read a book, a debate between theists and atheists on the existence of God. And I remember reading this one atheist, and man, he was good. I mean, this guy was a sharp, and his arguments were, he just, I thought he made, a, it was the best arguments I'd ever seen for atheism. I didn't, I didn't care about that stuff. I didn't come to God through this stuff, so I don't, I don't care about reading that stuff. I'm, I'm way past that, okay? But I remember reading this guy, and he was good, and his name was Anthony Flew. Well, then about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, I picked up a book called There Is a God, and it was the way they had designed it, there is no God, and they crossed out the no and put a above it. There is a God, how the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And the author was Anthony Flew, okay? He had become a believer in God. And what got him to change his mind 
was the Big Bang. The Big Bang, you know, a lot of adults don't like the Big Bang, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, but it has caused a number of people to believe in God. When it first came out, the Soviets had conniption fits over it. They didn't want to believe in the Big Bang because they understood some of the implications of it. But flew, and if you think about it, he believed in the universe as a, quote, a brute fact, okay? Just, you know, the universe, it just was. The universe just was. He didn't want to get behind it or seek anything for it. It was just there. Now that, if you really think about it, that's not that rational of a position, is it? Does it strike you as that rational? I mean, the universe seems to be an awfully complicated and involved state of affairs to, to not really have any explanation for it, to be just there, okay? That, but that was the position that he took. But Flew said he had simply taken the, un, quote, the universe and its fundamental features as the ultimate fact. Okay? I mean, we all have to stop somewhere. Okay, we all have to stop somewhere. And he's stopping with the existence of the universe. That was boom. That was as far back as he was going to go. The universe. It didn't need an explanation. You know, you reach a bottom line, you get to a point where you don't get behind something. It doesn't have an explanation. It doesn't have a cause. There's no reason. It just is. And that's what he used as his starting point. Now, I happen to think it's a cop-out, but that's another issue. But anyway, after the Big Bang Theory, which teaches that the universe had a beginning, had a start, that it didn't always exist, Flew had to abandon his previous position. The universe didn't always exist, is what the Big Bang thought. It had a beginning, and thus Flew had to abandon one of his most fundamental beliefs. Okay, one of the most fundamental beliefs because and the, the implications of it. And he found, Flew found the argument. And I don't know if you've recently read, I'm going to get into this. There's some of them are arguing now that the universe was created out of nothing. Have you heard that? Out of nothing. We're going to come back to that in a minute because that's really about the most logical argument they've got. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let me read you a quote. There's this one of this book, Bill Bryson, A Short History of Nearly Everything. And I just wanted just to read you something. Listen to this quote. This was a best-selling book. And I mean, talk about assuming what you're trying to prove. Listen to the logic and reason here in this. Okay, Bill Bryson, A Short History of Nearly Everything. It seems impossible, quote, quote, it seems impossible that you could get something from nothing. But the fact that once there was nothing, but now there is a universe is evident proof that you can. Okay? okay? I mean, that's... You want me to read it? Listen to this. Think about this. It seems impossible that you could get something from nothing. But the fact that there once was nothing, but now there is a universe is evident proof that you can can. Okay? All right. Well, you know, if, if you accept the premise that there was once nothing and now there's something, that is, to put it kindly, I think as ludicrous as it sounds, you know, nothing flew just couldn't buy into that. He couldn't buy into that. I mean, when nothing 
when nothing, that which by definition does not exist, is posited instead of God as the creative force behind cosmic origins, one has to wonder about the logic, logic of those who look for something, anything, even nothing, as opposed to God as the source of our existence. God, the foundation of all existence, is replaced by nothing, the negation of all existence. But see, it's interesting, too. We've all heard of Stephen Hawking, probably considered the greatest scientist since um, Einstein, sits in the, the Lukasian chair at, at Cambridge, which was the chair that Isaac Newton had. I remember a couple years ago, I went to Cambridge University. I knew a guy that was studying there, and I'm walking through Cambridge, and I felt like I was in sacred ground. That was, there was the, where Isaac Newton, that's where Isaac Newton's office was, and you walk around the corner, oh, this bar, they discovered the, DNA, uh, the double helix for DNA, and you come to a lab, oh, here's where they discovered the atom. I mean, it was pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. But anyway, Hawk, and Hawking's teaches there. But in his latest book, Hawking's The Grand Design, listen to this. Listen to the logic. See, this is I don't think this is science. I think this is more metaphysics than science. He begins, he has this line. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Okay? That's, you see, it's kind of, you know what a Moebius strip is, M-O-B-I, you know what a Moebius, that kind of turns my neurons into a Moebius strip, trying to work my way through the logic of this. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Now, I am not a physicist, okay? I'm, you're looking at a guy, I flunked chemistry in high school, okay? I cheated, and I still flunked chemistry in high school, okay? Even cheating, I flunked. So I'm not, and, 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 and my math, you know, you really can't understand physics without doing math. And outside of the time dilations for special relativity, which, you know, I think anybody could do, I can't do the math for physics, you know, the math needed for physics. So I'm not, you know, who am I? I'm going to sit there and challenge Stephen Hawking's on his physics. But at the same time, I'm saying a statement like this isn't just physics. It's metaphysics. It's philosophical. It's, it's, it's stepped beyond that realm. I mean, he begins with these words. Notice, notice how the language betrays you. He's trying to argue, began out of nothing, but he starts with these words, because there is. So can you see the point right there? Suddenly, well, there is. That in and of itself, right then and there, kind of betrays the whole point that he makes. I mean, it implies that there is what? There is something, not nothing. So right off the bat, the first part of the sentence, which points to something, contradicts the last part, which points to nothing. Whatever there is might be fleeting, might be imperceptible, inaccessible, incomprehensible, but it's not nothing. Hawking then tells us what there is. He says, because there is, and he says, he says, because there is a law such as gravity, okay? Now, again, I have no doubt that the physics is heavy. I have no doubt that I'm missing a lot here. But what I'm not missing, 
In this sentence are two nouns, law and gravity. Okay, a law is not nothing, gravity is not nothing. In this case, he's talking about a law of nature. A law of nature is something. And sure, gravity might be weak. You know, they say there's three, four fundamental forces in all the universe. Strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity. And gravity is very weak. I mean, look at this. You got the whole, gravity is just the, the, um, the mass of the Earth Actually, it's kind of complicated. It's actually the mass of the Earth bending space and time and pulling it down. But I got the whole Earth beneath me. Look at that. I can lift my hand. That's how weak gravity is. You got this whole mass of Earth beneath me, all pulling, and I can lift my hand, okay? It's weak, but it's not nothing. It's something. Gravity is real, okay? Gravity is real. I mean, what are these people getting plastic surgery for? For nothing? It's gravity, folks. It's there. It's real. Okay? It's real. It's not nothing. So how does one argue? Again, as I said, I, I don't understand this. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. A law of gravity is not... In fact, if, if you... Again, I don't want to try to speculate, but going on our understanding of gravity now... It just hit me. I don't know how gravity can exist if there isn't mass and matter. Maybe there's, you know what I'm, if, if Einstein's general relativity is correct and that's all gravity is, is matter bending space and time, how could there be gravity if there was no matter? But anyway, but again, the point is people are looking for something, anything, even nothing as opposed to God as the creative force behind, force behind our origins. For some, the foundation of all existence, God, is replaced by nothing, the negation of all existence. But you know, in many ways, the argument that nothing created the universe is really the most logical place they could go to. It's the most logical argument that you have because, you know, think about it for a minute. You know, scientists are all looking. They're all looking for what they call the theory of everything. It's this idea, and I don't know where they get this from, because I think, but it's foundational in, in physics that the, that the universe could be explained ideally by one grand unifying principle. Okay, they say if they, they find it, it'll be simple enough, you could put it on a t-shirt. Okay, and they're, they're going on the assumption, there's a thing called Occam's razor, which, well, the, which the guy William of Occam, a phrase he never used, that the idea is that everything should be made as simple as it can be and that the universe ultimately is going to be made of one simple formula. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm wondering why they think that. What were the philosophical presuppositions behind that? But let's say, out of the blue, they suddenly discovered the theory of everything, x plus y equals z. That explains everything. That's as foundational, they, they're at the lining of the world. Okay, say that is as foundational as they, they know we could go. But see, the question is, why is it x? Why is it y? Why is it z? Why not p times q equals r? 
or L squared minus the square root of V equals Q. In other words, whatever they find, whatever they find, whatever that is, there has to be something anterior to it to explain why it's that instead of not, or why it's not something else. You see what I'm saying? I don't care how far you go. You know, they're trying to argue now that the most constituent matter in the universe aren't atoms, they're strings. String theory, and I think a string is to the size of a proton, as a proton is to the size of the, the, uh, the solar system, okay? And it's very theoretical. They say they need an atom smasher the size of the, the galaxy in order to be able to break matter down to get to these strings, these supposed strings. But even if they found the strings, okay, why the strings? So whatever you come to, whatever you find, ultimately, you, it's going to need an explanation. What, though, is the one thing that you don't need an explanation for. Well, no, no, you're jumping ahead of me. You're jumping ahead of me. What have we been talking, what, what are they arguing the universe came from? From nothing. See, nothing doesn't need an explanation. Again, you ask that question, why is there nothing instead of something? It's logically self-contradictory. So in many ways, to argue that the universe came from nothing is really the most logical argument that they have, okay? Because anything else is going to need, you know, of these other things, is going to need an explanation. The only thing that doesn't need an explanation is nothing, okay? Now, so you've got nothing, or what's the only other thing, the only other thing that doesn't need an explanation? is an eternally existing God, a God who always existed. There was never a time when he wasn't there. So to ask where he came from is, it's a nonsensical question. So really, in many ways, the argument from, they're forced. They're really, this is where, if they're going to reject an eternal existing God, if they're going to reject the God of Scripture, Yahweh, the God as we understand him, then Really, logically, nothing is the best place for them to go to. And I, I don't know, folks. I mean, not, the universe came out of nothing, or it came from an eternally existing God. Is it unreasonable? Is it unreasonable to believe that, um, that, that God is a little more of a reasonable argument? than out of nothing. Can you see what I'm saying? That's why I'm saying I believe that the logic and reason behind belief in God works a whole lot better than the logic that people use who don't believe in God. So take your pick, as I said, because either nothing, nothing doesn't need an explanation, or an eternal existing God who always existed doesn't need an explanation. Everything else pretty much does. And uh, that, I think, in some ways, is part of the legacy of the Big Bang. Whether, as I said, I have no problem with the Big Bang. I can believe it. It's probably not true. Uh, more and more, you know, they're finding things with Hubble. They're finding some things that are calling it into question. I don't have a problem with it in terms of my Christian faith. Anyway, so that's one argument. That's why they go to nothing, because 
it's the most logical thing you can go to if you don't want to believe in a God. And how logical is it? Well, you'll leave that for you to decide. Then you've got what they often call, it's often called the teleological argument. That's a fast, fancy term for the argument from design, argument from nature and from design. And some people try to argue that way back in the 1700s, the philosopher David Hume had demolished the argument from design. If you read, I've read his book fairly carefully. It's called Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. He's got a dialogue between people talking, and, and people go, oh, Hume destroyed the argument from design. Hume destroyed it, and how could anybody use the argument from design after David Hume? Well, you know, it's, I'm sorry, I've read Hume. I read the book. I don't think he destroyed the argument, okay? In other words, you could have an argument. Let's see, what happens is, how do you, I don't know how you quantify this. You could have an argument that's 99% valid. Okay, we're going to try to quantify something. 99% valid. You've got 1%, 1% where there's a question. And you go in and you hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer away at the 1%. You see what I'm saying? The argument from dying isn't foolproof. If it was foolproof, everybody would believe. I wouldn't be standing up here doing this, okay? But it's powerful, okay? And so Hume harps and harps and harps on that 1%. And it's very interesting. In the book, in the book, Hume says something. He says something. And again, this was written, Hume died in 1776, Okay, so he wrote this long before we had any idea of the complexity of what's out there. He said, Hume had to admit, quote, they always talked, they wrote funny back then, but listen, matter, you know, meaning, you know, material things, matter may contain the source or spring of order originally within itself that the several elements from an internal unknown cause may fall into the most exquisite arrangement. Okay, so again, he's saying that matter, you know, may have something originally in it, in and of itself from an internal unknown cause, okay, that so it can fall into the most exquisite arrangement. And again, exquisite, we're long before electron microscopes, long before they had any idea of the complexity. In fact, I tend to be convinced if Charles Darwin were alive and he knew the complexity of things, I wouldn't be surprised if he would have just said, ah, my theory can't possibly be right. But anyway, here's Hume saying that matter has something inside it in and of itself to make things so exquisitely arranged. But might I ask, I think all that does is push the argument back because I ask, where did matter get the information and the ability to organize itself into this exquisite arrangement? Again, he was at a time where I don't think surgeons knew that, hey, maybe it's a good idea to wash my hands before I go take out somebody's appendix if they did that back then. I mean, they didn't do that back then. They didn't know what we know. I mean, it's like, it's, it's easier to imagine paper and ink. Something from, in, it's like saying something inherent in paper and ink 
allowed it to form Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace or something like that than to, than to think of um, carbon and water and proteins organizing themselves you know, in and of themselves into a single cell, much less something like Albert Einstein's mind. And of course, science claims they have the answer as to how they can do that. They say they can do it. It's because it's from random mutation and natural selection. Though I don't want to get into the whole thing here. I can go off a long time about evolution, believe me. You know, it's, uh, I think though the question of, of design though has become a two-edged sword with the sharpest edge cutting against atheism. Think about it for a minute. Think about it, the sharpest edge cutting against atheistic evolution. Think about this for a minute. While the science about how or even if random mutation and natural selection could have created the com complexity of life, while that is hotly, hotly contested and hotly debated, what isn't contested, what isn't debated, is the complexity of life itself, okay? No one's gonna argue against that, okay? No one's gonna argue that everything is, you know, not every, everything's not very complicated and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, think of the irony here, though. I find this very ironic because um, the more complexity Think about this. The more complexity science finds in life, and my goodness, they say a single cell wall, just the wall of a cell is filled with complexities and mysteries that we don't have a clue about, much less everything else. The more complexity science finds in life, the less likely the mean science claims for its origins becomes. Can you see the point there? because they're finding all this complex stuff, but oh yes, of course, it all arose by chance. It all arose by chance. In fact, it was funny, if Crick, of Crick and Watson fame, and Crick was a hard-nosed atheist. Just, <clears throat> he was a new atheist before there were new atheists were around. But he realized, and he, he might have died 10, 15 years ago, he realized that life was way too complex to have formed by chance in the number of, even in the billions of years they give for evolution. He just knew, nah, it couldn't have happened by chance. So he came up with what they call the panspermia theory. And here he is, the Nobel Prize winning scientist, probably one, considered one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century and he comes up with the idea that aliens from another universe came to the Earth and, and with rockets and, and seeded life here on Earth, okay? And it was funny, I read an article in a secular magazine and the guy was bemoaning this. He was bemoaning how the, you know, the greatest scientist of the 20th century thinks that aliens came in spaceships and seeded life on Earth. But again, I think Crick, looked at this complexity and just said the idea of it coming by chance. You know, it's just too fantastic for it to have come by chance. So he's got space, of course, 
Space aliens don't solve the problem. They just push the problem back a little further anyway. But anyway, the point is Anthony flew. It was the creation of the universe. And plus two, it was the complexity of life that helped get Anthony flew. Anthony flew to, uh, to ultimately believe that there was a God. And it's really a fascinating book. If you read the book, he's almost there. He's almost at Christianity. Not there yet, but because this isn't going to take you to Christianity, but it's got him to believe in a God. Anthony flew, there is a God. And in fact, in one point in the book, he quoted another um, scientist as saying, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Okay, he's quoting somebody else in there to show that, you know, the impossible. Well, if it's impossible, the sentence is self-refuting. It's not impossible because that's what they're saying happened, unless it didn't happen by chance. Okay, all right, now, there's a new argument out there now. They're, they're saying, okay, life is too complicated to have formed in our universe by chance. So they got a whole new theory now. You might have heard this. You might have heard this is that we, our universe is only one of an infinite, or, or many, many, perhaps even an infinite number of other universes. So you see what they're trying to do here. Okay, the odds are of one universe creating life on Earth Life coming by chance. Yeah, they admit that's kind of far-fetched. So they come up with an infinite number of universes. And suddenly, if you have an infinite number, what is the chance then? Suddenly, your odds are much greater of one out of these infinite number of universes creating life. It's like if, say, you got, you're going to flip a coin 10 times. What are the odds of you flipping it and getting five in a row, you know, heads? If you're only going to flip it 10 times, fire getting 10 in a row heads. But if you flip those coins, a hundred million, you get a hundred million coins and flip them. What are the odds of somewhere in there getting 10 in a row? Or I think if you have to do it an infinite number of times, inevitably you're going to come up with 10 in a row. Of course, the fact is they've never seen one another one of these universes. And it's quite a bit of speculation about, there's a new book out called The Hidden Reality by Brian Greene, or The Hidden Cosmos, I can't remember. And he probably does as good of a job as any I've ever read trying to show the logic and reason behind all these infinite number of universes, okay? But even, even if um, you, they call it, instead, we don't live in a universe, they call it a multi verse. Because uni implies one, but they're saying, no, 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 there's an infinite number out there. Of course, even if you bought into that argument, I mean, I don't know, maybe there are more universes out there, or parallel universes. I tend to think there's got to be, because, you know, according to the best physics we know, information can't travel faster than the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. Okay, it gets you to the moon and back in seven, you know, that seven times in one second, or the sun in six minutes. But I mean, prayer, 
Okay? If prayer was limited by the speed of light, our prayers still never would have gotten to heaven. So I think there's a whole other level of reality out there that you know, we're totally inaccessible you know, inaccessible to. And maybe it's parallel universes that could somehow interact. I don't know. But even if you accepted that there was an infinite number of universes out there, it only makes the question of their origin infinitely more pressing than does the existence of one. Okay? If the existence of one universe would imply there's a God, if you've got an infinite number of universes, where do they come from? Where did they come from? You're right back again to, well, you got one of two options. Either they arose out of nothing or God created them. So look at the extremes here. They argue life arose from nothing or they go to the other extremes and they posit an infinite number of universes, which in the end doesn't get rid of the question of God anyway. I think it only makes it infinitely more pressing. Wouldn't a supernatural creator in many ways be a little more logical and reasonable? You know, I'm going to apply here what scientists like to do. They call it Occam's razor. Why use 10 explanations for something if you can explain it in, with three? Okay, let's put Occam's razor here and cut off all these infinite number of universes that they're speculating about that doesn't solve their problem anyway. Then, you know, I don't know if you've ever read, everybody's heard of Richard Dawkins. You know, he's one of the, he came to Maryland a while back. I delayed and delayed. He was going to speak at the University of Maryland. My wife said, you better go. You better check and get tickets early. Well, I laid until a bunch of us from, I was going to go with some of my buddies at the Biblical Research Institute. And, uh, but as it was, we couldn't get there because it was too late. You know, it was already sold out because, you know, Dawkins is going to get a big crowd. But I don't know if you've read, he read his, read, he wrote the book, The God Delusion. And uh, it really, I mean, it was a very funny book, very entertaining, very, he's a very compelling writer. He's much better than any of the other atheists. But really, in the end, it was nothing new. There was no new argument against the existence. It was the same old stuff done very funny and very creatively. And, you know, they all do the same thing. I mean, let's face it. You can have some really whacked religious people, okay? I mean, let's face it. You know, religious people can do some really whacked, stupid things, and they, some of them believe in some really whacked, stupid things. And so they focus on that, and they make anybody believe in God look like an idiot. You know, so that's what a lot of them, what they do in the book. That's some of the arguments. Well, that's no argument. It's not against God. It's an argument against the silliness of some of the people who believe it. But the essence of his argument in the book that he repeats over and over, it comes down to this. It's who created God. Okay, that's the bottom line. If you get through, you cut through everything else, that's his bottom line argument. Who created God? He says, quote, a designer God cannot be used to explain organized complexity because any God capable of designing anything would have to be complex enough to demand the same kind of explanation in his own right. Close quote. Okay. Now, on one level, that's logical. You know, let's be fair. We're saying complexity, something that's so designed and complex, demands something to explain the complexity. That's, that's our argument. Okay. Well, he's saying, well, anything that could create something as, uh, as, as designed and complex as the world itself, 
That would have to be very, very complex, and that itself needs an explanation as well. But again, he's so locked in to his naturalistic worldview, he's missing the point. But, you know, a, an eternal God, by definition, doesn't have a creator. He's not created. He doesn't need an explanation. He doesn't need, there's nothing to explain him. He was always there from the beginning. And I said, so confined by naturalism, Dawkins can't understand the difference. The difference between, you know, an eternal existing, the maid and the maker. He tries to apply something that just doesn't apply. That's the whole point of an eternally existing God. Now, and then who would that be? In the end, everything from cell membrane physiology to great futes to great fruit to human sexuality make God so much more likely the explanation for their functionality, their beauty and purpose than does any explanation predicated on the chance confluence of particles and forces that in and of themselves requires something, a sufficient cause outside of them, greater than them, and interior to them. And who might that be, or what might that be? But again, you come back to a God. I mean, in the end, what is more likely to have been, think about it too, what is more likely to have been uncaused anyway? The universe or God? Okay. I mean, you know, does the universe, no cause? Okay, it just seems logically a God, eternal God, as opposed to the universe. Then, you know, you've got a whole argument. You've got a whole argument for the moral, the moral argument for the existence of God. Think about this. This is nothing new. Think about this for a minute, though. Let's say, let's say, I need a drink. It's hot. I'm a writer and an editor. Preaching is like pulling teeth out of me. Let's say the Nazis won the war, okay? Because you can't do anything without bringing the Nazis in, can we? Okay. It was funny. There was, there was I don't know, there was some guy in D.C., some people at the laundry lost his pants and he sued him for $54 million and it made international news and this team from Germany came over to, you know, cover, you know, covering it and somehow somebody they brought in the Nazis and this one reporter said, I knew they would drag us into this somehow. The Germans. But let's say they had won the war and let's say under Joseph Goebbels' propaganda machine Say they convinced everybody in the world, anybody who was alive, that anybody with one Jewish grandparent, because that's what the Nazis did. If you had one Jewish grandparent, you were considered Jewish. And they said anybody with one Jewish grandparent needed to be executed. Now, there's two grand overarching theories about morality, okay? Some say morality is a purely human construct. It's like cakewalk jazz, okay, or impressionist art. Humans, we create it, 
Okay, we've created it, okay? It's something that we make. And so they say morality is a purely human construct. Same way art is. Or there is the idea that there is morality, a transcendent morality, a morality greater than us, above us, that is imposed, for lack of a better word, on us. Okay, those are the two basic views of where morality comes from. I can't really think of a third, okay? Now, let's go back to our Nazi thing. If, let's say, the first view is correct, let's say morality is purely a human construct, same way democracy is, okay? If the Nazis won the war, and they convinced every human being, every human being, that anybody with one Jewish grandparent deserved to die, would that be morally wrong? Yeah, how could it be morally wrong? If, the, if you accept the first view, if you accept the first view, that it's purely made by humans, that our morality is a human invention, then if every, if, if every human being, or even if, how do you do it? You want to do a democracy, a majority? We, you know, a majority make, votes it. Is it, you know, how could it be wrong? How could it be wrong if morality comes purely from, from, from humans? Now, if you're not comfortable with that, and I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with that, then why? Why? It would imply, it's not absolute for many people, the reason they're not comfortable with that is because they feel like there's certain things that are just wrong no matter what. Well, from where? Where? where could, how could they be wrong no matter what? And for many people say, well, it's because morality transcends everything human. Morale, there's something greater than humans. And if it's immoral, what, from just, you know, atoms and quarks and protons and neutrons eventually created this moral universe? I guess it's not logically impossible. It's not a contradiction, but it's awfully hard to understand how inanimate, amoral matter, everything is made up of basically what we know now, quarks and color force. How do quarks and color force, you know, met themselves into atoms, into molecules, into chemicals, you know, into life, into conscious beings that have moral qualities. I guess it's not absolutely impossible, but it sure seems very, very improbable. Very, very, you know, improbable. So again, many people would would say that that's a powerful argument for the existence of God, this concept of morality. And then you go on, there's the whole thing of life's meaninglessness in the face of death. I can't tell you how many books I read and how much I read about people just struggle with the ultimate meaninglessness of life. You know, if, you, if, if this is it, this is it, there's nothing else. It all seems so meaningless, so purposeless. 
And yet if you think about it, you know, you think about it, the thumb has a purpose. The nose has a purpose. The air has a purpose. The, 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 the sun has a purpose. I mean, every, the endoplasmic reticulum has a purpose. It's something in a cell. I forgot what it was, but it's something in a cell. You know. I mean, everywhere we look, we see purpose. We see a, an end for something, a, you know, purposes for things. Okay, then you take humans here. Here on earth, you take us, and you take it all, all these purposes, where we see it, and you put them all together. And here we have human beings, and it all comes to ultimate purposelessness and meaninglessness. It just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't make sense. It's like taking a bunch of positive integers, taking a bunch of, and adding up a bunch of positive integers, and coming with getting a number less than zero. Can you see the point there? It just doesn't make any sense at all. And yet you read, and I'm not the only one. You don't have to be a Christian to see this. I remember a while back, I read a book called The Confessions of a Philosopher by a guy named Brian McGee. And it was the most beautiful, eloquent expression of this. He was going along. He said he had a great life. He said everything in my life, he said, was going along. I had, he was a music critic. He was a drama critic. He was an MP. He, had, he said he had you know, a lot of great relationships with women. He said everything in my life was going. I had everything you could imagine. And then he said it hit him. It hit him in his mid-30s that one day he was going to die that anybody who ever knew him was going to die, and that any remembrance that was ever of him was going to be gone. Because if you, if you take the atheistic view, you know, sooner or later they say the universe is going to collapse in on itself about the size of a fist. It's called the big crunch. Or they say if it's expanding, it's going to keep going and the era of light is going to be over. Or even way before that, the sun is supposed to blow up or something. But the point is, the point is he realized that at some point in this worldview, Anything he had ever done, anybody who ever knew him, any influence he ever could have possibly had on anybody at any time would ultimately one day be gone forever and ever. And it made no difference had he been born, had he died, it would have made no difference whether, you know, where he lived, what he accomplished, what he did. I mean, it was beautifully, powerfully elegant. Brian McGee, Confessions of a Philosopher. And I think he was right. And then the kind of the sad thing is, is he decided he was going to, it was his intellectual, he was going to try to study art and literature and science and all this stuff to find answers. And uh, he comes back at the end of the book. He comes back at the end of the book. He says, I've, you know, all this stuff. It's like Goethe's Faust. And he says, I'm no closer to anything before than I was when I began. He said, if anything, the problems are infinitely more complex. He said, what, going to, you know, reading, going to hear Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor or listening to Wagner didn't solve the, the meaning of life for him? Because in the end, you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing, the world, okay, I'm running. I'd like to leave it open for a few minutes for questions if we can. The world, this world in and of itself is not the answer. What is it? It's the question. It's not the solution. It's the problem. It's the problem, okay? 
And uh, so, so to find an answer in and of this world, in and of itself, is you're looking for where the problem is to begin with. Ultimately, there's got to be something I believe. I guess it doesn't have to. If, if, if ultimately you still want to believe that life has to have a meaning, okay, that if all these things with purpose don't all, you know, all conclude and end up in purposelessness, I guess you could, you could argue that. Okay, I don't think it's logical. I think the logic works in favor. Hey, all these things have purpose. All these, all these things we see have purpose, and they all add up to humans and all this. And yet, we're all ultimately purposeless and meaningless. It's not a logical impossibility, but it doesn't seem to make the most sense. Ultimately, it would seem that you'd have to find something transcending this world, something greater than this world. You know, I read a lot of philosophers. I'm just hooked on the stuff. I can't help it. But, you know, in the end, I realize that in the end, I read all these guys and it's so much of it's just, I can't, there's nothing so stupid that somewhere philosophers haven't written about or pushed. I spent hours reading some of this nonsense. And I think, what am I doing reading this nonsense? But in the end, if you don't solve, I'm convinced if you don't solve the question of death, you haven't answered the fundamental question of life. If you don't solve the question of death, you haven't answered the fundamental question of life. That's why I like this, this line by the poet Auden. He said, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Interesting. We who must die demand a miracle because he sees the world isn't the answer. The answer. And a miracle demands a deity, which leads us back to the dilemma with C.S. Lewis that I first talked about. As his atheist friend said, powerful evidence exists for the historicity of the Gospels. And the Gospels are filled with miracles. It's filled. They don't try to explain it. They don't try to justify it. It just goes on the assumption of miracles. Okay? Now, you know, it's just as discovery. Here's the thing. For years, scientists used to, or philosophers used to talk about a black swan. They used to say, all swans are white. Okay? There was, a, there was a philosophical thing, all swans are white. They used that for years to try to make a point about some kind of, some, some absolute truth. Okay, all swans are white. Well, what happened was somebody went down to Australia one day, and what did they discover? A black swan. Okay, and it wiped it out. So, in, in the same way, just as the existence of even one miracle, this is existence of one black swan wipes away the, the idea that all swans are white, the existence of even one miracle destroys any worldview which argues that these miracles cannot happen. Okay? It's as simple as that. And now, proving the miracle is another matter. Proving them, that's another matter. But for those of us who have believed in them or have experienced them, to a certain degree, evidence for God's existence becomes lodged in places where, where you know, Logic doesn't go. You see, in the end, and let me, I'll close. I had a little more. I can get into some other things when I'm running out of time. I want to leave for 
questions a few minutes. But, you know, all these, as I said in the end, I think all these arguments, you know, where did everything come from, design, morality, I think all these work in our favor. But, you know, to a, they're not absolute. They, as I said, they're absolute, I wouldn't be here. Okay? But I think the evidence powerfully, powerfully works. And again, if you were, they were forced to resort to nothing, nothing as the source of all existence, I, that doesn't seem all that logical to me. But you know, as, as good as all this stuff is, to a certain degree, you know what I do? I cheat. I cheat. How do I, what do I mean? What do you think I mean by saying I cheat? What am I referring to? Huh? Right, faith, but what, what am I, yeah, faith, but what am I, what am I referring to when I say I cheat? See, I'm trying to use logic and reason here. Pure logic and pure reason. Okay, boom, boom, boom. I'm trying to make everything flow logically from the other. But when I say I cheat, what, that means I'm stepping out of the realm of logic and reason. What am I stepping into? Faith, faith stepping into experience. I'm stepping into something that goes beyond where logic and reason could take you. See, all these arguments are good in and of themselves. They're good, and you put them together. But ultimately, in the end, I'm not ultimately convinced this is going to... Well, it might, this might get you to believe in God, but it's not going to get you to the cross. And, you know, you think about it for a minute, and then I'm going I'm to stop with this, and I, I meant to leave a little more time. What is the most important thing you know? Of all the truths we could know, what's the most important thing? I'd say the most important, I'll tell you what, I, the most important thing I know is that Jesus died for my sins and that through faith in his righteousness, I can, my sins be covered, I could be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. Now, all the logic and reason in the world all the natural philosophy, natural science, all that, that is never, never going to get me to the cross. It can get me to an unmoved mover. It can get me to an intelligent designer. It can get me to, you know, a, 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 some kind of creator, and on and on and on. But it's never going to teach me the most important thing I need to know. And how did I learn the most important thing I need to know? It had to be revealed to me. It had to be spoon-fed to me in drips and drivels in the Word of God. And when that, when I, when I, that hit me, that was a mind-blowing thought to me. Because when the most important truth we know, you don't remember when you're in high school or whatever, you get, a, you get an answer to a math problem, and there's the answer. Oh, I could have done this. I could have multiplied this by this and divided that, and I could have gotten to it. Or I could have taken the square root of that, and I could have gotten to it. And in other words, there's the answer. You find all the ways you could get to it. Well, here's the answer. The cross and all the logic, all the reason, all the natural philosophy, all those things are never going to get you to it. So I guess in the end, the bottom line is all these things are important, and they have their role. But that role is fine to a point, and then it stops. And then you ultimately have to reach out on faith. And it's not just in anything religious. 
It's in anything as well. We're probably not going to have time for questions. I'm going to give, I want you all to do an experiment. And I'm not going to, because, and it shows ultimately, it shows ultimately the limits of all human knowledge. And why ultimately in the end, no matter what we believe, eventually we got to go on faith. On your computer, I want you to create a file on your desktop. Call it whatever you want. Call it whatever you want. How about, why don't you call it self-referential file, or call it self-referential. So you got your file on your desktop. You got your icon. I'm, speak, I'm assuming I, I'm a Mac person, but I, 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 I put PCs out of my mind. I don't even want to think about them anymore, but I think you could do that on a PC as well. So you got your file on the desktop. Call it self-referential. Then you click on the icon to your self-referential file. And what's going to happen? The folder is going to open. Okay? You'll see a folder there. Now, I want you to take your mouse, take your cursor, and go to that icon, self-referential file, and drag it in to the open folder. Okay? Do that. And you'll see something there. And keep trying it. And that is indicative. Watch what happens. And that is just a little metaphor, a little symbol of ultimately why all knowledge, secular, say anything we can know, you ultimately reach a point where justification stops. And you have to reach out on faith. In fact, I'll end with this. I have a whole sermon I have called Math Problem. And for years, some of the, a lot of philosophers were mathematicians because the idea was you can get absolute certainty in numbers, okay? Two plus two equals four, okay? The shortest distance between two points is a straight line and on and on. It was considered absolute. Well, by the middle of the 20th century, the entire foundation of all that is kicked out. You can't ultimately know absolutely for sure two plus two equals four. You have to accept certain things on assumptions. And by the way, folks, the shortest distance between two points is not a straight line, okay? It's not a straight line. Just do research it yourself. But the point is, in the end, everybody thought mathematics was absolute. But now we know that, that mathematics is not absolutely certain that there's certain things you got to take on faith. So in the end, folks, if we're going to take things like math on faith, how much more so the things of an eternal, of an eternal God? So no matter all the reasons we have, and I think we've got very good reasons for belief, very good reasons, they're not absolutely reached a point where ultimately you have to step out. And it's kind of funny when any other field, when you say you got to take it on faith, they kind of, well, you failed. And isn't it interesting that Christianity, faith is built in right from the start? Because I guess God ultimately knew the limits of where our fallen minds would take us. Anyway, let's pray. Again, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things. And Thank you for all the reasons we have for our beliefs. And thank you that we don't have blind faith. And 
the same time too, Lord, help us to realize that no matter what we know, what we believe, there are aspects and elements that go beyond what we can fully understand. Help us to cling fervently to what we do understand and then to reach out on faith on what we don't, claiming your promises for more light and more truth. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www. .asiministries.org Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.